you wanted the best, you've got the best podcast. The hottest, hottest. podcast in the world. In the world. The Chris Voss Show, the preeminent podcast with guests so smart you may experience serious brain bleed. The CEOs, authors, thought leaders, visionaries, and motivators. Get ready, get ready. Strap yourself in. Keep your hands, arms, and legs inside the vehicle at all times because you're about to go on a monster education roller coaster with your brain. Now, here's your host, Chris Voss. Hi, folks. It's Voss here from thechrisvossshow.com. Dot com. We just make up whatever on the end of it. I like it better that way. Thanks for tuning in the big show, my family and friends. For 15 years, of course, we've been bringing you the most wonderful, smartest minds and improving your quality of life. Uh, while the news may be dreary some days, we bring you that shining light, what they sometimes refer to as the Chris Voss glow into your life. And then after you engage with the show, I mean, there's three to four episodes a day. Uh, there's 10 to 15 to 20 new shows a week. Uh, you just leave with the Chris Foss Show Glow, and everywhere you walk, you have this aura of knowledge, power, and enlightenment, and just brightness. It sounds like a goddamn cult, doesn't it? But it's not. But we do charge 10%. No, I'm just kidding. What we do ask is uh, very small. We ask you to further show to your family, friends, and relatives. Go to goodreads.com, Fortress Chris Foss, LinkedIn.com, Fortress Chris Foss, YouTube.com, Fortress Chris Foss, and Chris Foss One. Those are the only dues that we ask for, and maybe a first child, as long as they're a good child. Uh, so anyway, guys, uh, we have an amazing <laughs> author on this show. I just make it up as I go along every time. Uh, and uh, he is going to be talking to us about his newest, hottest, coolest book, uh, and was very popular on the old uh, number one bestseller there in the uh, old on Amazon. You know, you may have heard of it. Uh, the book is entitled The Mysterious Case of Rudolf Diesel's Genius, uh, Power and Deception on the Eve of World War One. We all remember that. Uh, book came out September 19th, 2023. Douglas Brunt joins us on the show today. It's going to be fun to talk to him. Number one bestseller in World War One history. So uh, we we're, this is going to be enlightening. And probably funner than some of the other stuff that's going now since we're working on World War III, I guess, at this point. Douglas Brunt is a New York Times bestselling author of Ghosts of Manhattan, The Means, Trophy Son, and The Mysterious Case of Rudolph Diesel, and host of the top-rated Sirius XM author podcast dedicated with Doug Brunt. He's a Philadelphia native, and he lives in New York with his wife and three children. Uh, welcome to the show, Douglas. How are you? Chris, you, you have the best show intro I've ever heard. It's thank you. It's fantastic. Although it sets a very high bar for the guests, I don't know if I can make anybody's brain bleed today. <laughs> well, you know that's what we do. It's it, it's uh, it, it definitely sparks up our our our, our guests will sit up a little bit higher and they'll be like, yeah, oh, yeah, like the pressure's on. Pressure's <laughs> on. So uh, thanks for coming on the show. Congratulations on the new book. Give us a dot coms. Where do you want people to find you on the interwebs, please? There, well, there's an author website that has a ton of old photos. The, the book is from the World War I era, and it's mm -hmm. Rudolph Diesel invented the diesel engine. There's tons of old photos from archives around the world at douglasbrunt.com. Mm -hmm. I'm on Instagram and Twitter, too. Uh, you know, you'll find it. You're doing the gram. So give us a 30,000 overview of this book and, and what's inside. Well, it, as you mentioned, it was a New York Times bestseller, and it's reviews call it the greatest caper of the 20th century. And I'll, I'll set it up for you. In 1913, on the eve of World War I, Rudolf Diesel, who invented the diesel engine. We know the word diesel, but not many people know there was a man behind this engine. And there's a reason that his 
history has really been scrubbed over these last hundred years. Mm -hmm. In 1913, on the eve of World War I, he disappeared. He was traveling on an overnight passenger ferry from Belgium to Great Britain on a, on a steamship going across the North Sea. And in the night, he disappeared. So in the morning, he was supposed to meet his traveling companions for breakfast. He didn't show up. <clears throat> so they hold the ship at sea and they do a search. They can't find anything except for his hat and his coat folded at the stern of the ship, seeming mm -hmm. to mark where he had jumped overboard. So the prevailing theory at that time was suicide. But other theories emerged immediately because mm -hmm. he was a huge celebrity at the time. Well, I mentioned we sort of forgotten that the man existed in today's world. But in 1913, he was a global celebrity. It'd be like Elon Musk was traveling to Nantucket on a flight and then just disappeared. Wow. So headlines around the world, the, the headlines of the New York Times, the papers all through England, Western Europe out to Russia were speculating on his disappearance. Mm -hmm. And there were two theories of murder. One was murder. that Kaiser Wilhelm II, the emperor of Germany, mm -hmm. had murdered him. The other was mm -hmm. that John Rockefeller, founder of Standard Oil and at that time richest man in the world, had murdered him. And they each had a motive why... You know, there was a reason why Diesel was such an existential threat to each of them. And so the book sets up, it, it's sort of a biography of Diesel, the man. It explains a little bit about why the engine was so critical. To this day, diesel power still powers the world. Our global mm -hmm. economy is run on diesel power. Uh, but as I explore the motives why each of them had a, uh, a reason to kill Diesel, it, it kind of takes you into that pre-World War One sort of uh, Gilded Age era where the cast of characters is phenomenal. And so it becomes a biography that turns into sort of like an Agatha Christie whodunit. Hmm. Murder, you say? Mm. <laughs> Wish I could do that better. Uh, <laughs> is that the guy from 2020? Uh, so uh, tell us a little bit more. This Rudolf Diesel, I didn't know, I didn't ever really put together there was a guy who had invented the diesel engine. I imagine somebody tried to do it, but it turns out it's a guy named Diesel. That's right. Yeah, this, uh, the titular engine. So the reason, the reason why Kaiser Wilhelm wanted to you know, found him to be a threat in 1913 is that by that time, really by 1908-09, the diesel engine had emerged as the only engine suitable for a submarine or a U-boat. Oh. And, you know, in these this decade prior to World War I, we're at the height of nationalism and militarism. There's an incredible arms race, the Anglo-German arms race happening between mm. Germany and Great Britain. I and that. They're, they're all turning to the submarine for their fleet. They realize suddenly this this submarine weapon has become this horrifying and critical weapon for navies. So the navies of all the major powers are scrambling for diesel power to build their submarine fleets. The reason diesel was crossing the North Sea on that night in September of 1913 was he was co-founder and board director of a new diesel engine manufacturing company based in Great Britain. Diesel was a German guy mm. based in Great Britain, whose mandate it was to build submarine diesels for the Great Britain's Royal Navy and Churchill, who was running the, the Royal Navy at that time. Mm -hmm. So you can understand why Wilhelm was thinking, hell no, that, that's not going to happen. We're not going to have our greatest, you know, our greatest inventor travel across the North Sea to go help out the British Navy. So oh. that, would, that would be viewed as treasonous for, for Kaiser Wilhelm. So that's why he leapt into the headlines as a, as a murder suspect. For Rockefeller, the reason was very different because Diesel, he had just come back from a trip to America in 1912 where he was advocating that he could run all the power in America on vegetable oil. He was saying, you don't need petroleum. You can, you can, you know, we have farmers, you can grow your own fuel. We don't need to be beholden to areas of the world where there's petroleum wow. in the ground. So that, that's what's fundamentally different about the diesel engine is that it runs on heavy oils. It can run on peanut oil. He won the 1900 Paris World's Fair on a diesel engine running peanut oil, wow. or vegetable oil or coal tar. And he was saying, I, he said to the newspapers in 1912, in America, I can break the American fuel monopoly 
And I don't need a law to do it. I don't need the Sherman Antitrust Act. I can do it through the power of this technology. So the diesel wow. engine was a threat to Standard Oil and Rockefeller. Wow. I mean, it's this is pretty interesting. What you've written lots of books. What drew you to this story? What uh, what what sparked it for you? Part of it it sort of gets to what I, I was just saying about the uh, the fuel. So I I bought an old boat like eight years ago, mm -hmm. and it was a slightly larger boat, old, needed to be fixed up. And I was in the boatyard with a guy who runs the boatyard, and I was saying, you know, what do you think I should do to fix this up? And he said, well, the first thing you should do for a boat like this is repower mm -hmm. these these engines from gasoline to diesels. And I was like most people, maybe many of your listeners, who mm -hmm. just thought diesel, like, that's like the other fuel I see at the fueling station, right? Like it's not a whole yeah. other engine. The more expensive one. Right. Well, these days, yeah. And uh, he said <laughs> diesel is a fundamentally different engine. You can take a barrel of diesel fuel, drop a lit match into it, and nothing will happen. The fuel is completely stable. There are no fumes. 100% of boat fires come from gasoline engines, zero from diesel. It's just a different engine. So it doesn't rely on wow. spark ignition. It's a high-pressure engine. Not to get geeky on the tech here, but the way it, it works is it's almost like a bicycle pump. You know, you jam down the plunger and it pumps the air out. Well, in a mm -hmm. closed cylinder that's not sending air into a bike tire, just a completely closed cylinder, if you jam down the plunger, which is basically the piston of the engine, it compresses the air into a tiny, tiny space, and that compression creates heat. Mm. So that's how the diesel engine works. So it's, it's a simple thing. It just compresses the air. Yeah. When the air is highly, highly compressed, it's very hot, and then the fuel is introduced and then it explodes and drives the piston back out. So there's no spark, and it's totally stable fuel with no fumes. Yeah, probably good on a submarine or a boat because, you know, exactly. you don't want to. fumes, no boat Which fire. is ironic because you're surrounded by water. I mean, you think if you got in trouble with fire, you'd have water, but technically it's not a good place to be. Yeah, or breathe in the fumes when you're yeah. in there. But the other thing about diesel is it's four times more efficient. Oh, really? So, there so you, you go, too. you know, on your 200-gallon fuel tank on your boat, you can go four times as far. Wow. You know, there's a, I've owned boats before and there's a, there's an old joke about boats and motorcycles. The two best days you have when you own a motorcycle or a boat are the day you buy one and the day you sell it. <laughs> <laughs> there's another raunchier one about, uh, planes and boats and things like that, mm -hmm. whether, whether you rent or not. So we won't tell that one because that's, uh, okay. Well, uh, well, it's somebody, offline. I'll tell everybody you. have to Google that one. There we go. <laughs> Something like that. Um, is is this a, is this the cow and milk joke for renting and buying? Is it similar? Uh, yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, I think I put right it there. I've heard that one movie too. Um, so uh, tell us a little bit more about yourself, so the audience can get to know you better. People of buying and and hearing from the authors, tell us a little about you and your journey, and and uh, what got you down these road, writing these books, and doing your uh, serious XM radio show, et cetera, et cetera. Always a big reader. Mm -hmm. Not always a big writer. I would hobby around with it and never mm -hmm. really thought it was a career that I could have. It was mm -hmm. one of the, I didn't know any writers. I didn't know anybody who collected a check writing. So I, I loved it, though. And I was, you know, you know, more shy, you know, in the summers when everyone's running around balls. It was a rainy day in the summer. I was kind of happy. I'm like, oh, great. I'll, like, sit inside and read a book. I have an excuse to do it. And um, after, you know, college, I got into a, a business career. And I was running a, a tech firm and I was traveling around a lot for that. And I would, of course, read on the pl planes and, and things like that. And at one point, um, it, it was just after I read Nelson DeMille's The Gold Coast. And Nelson is one of my favorite authors. And I read this book and I had this thought, I want to make people feel the way this book made me feel. Mm -hmm. I had this weird idea for a novel. And so I just started it. 
Although even still, I wasn't thinking this was a novel that anyone, maybe outside my wife, and even her, would ever see. It was just sort of to tool around on the planes and in the terminals waiting for planes and things like that. Yeah. So I finished it. I was like, I was actually feeling pretty good about it. You know, this like, you know, maybe I'm crazy and I have no objectivity, but I think it's good. So I, I did let my wife read it. She goes, no, this is actually really good. I'm enjoying it. Hmm. Wow. So got an agent and, you know, long story uh, short, agent into my first publishing deal, sold the company and then have been writing since. But it was a big transformation for me to go from running a company and having a you know a team and a board and customers and investors and you know busy day lots of meetings and lots yeah. of yeah all the employees and all that noise yeah to then going yeah to to no noise to then sitting in my room you know with my imaginary friends instead of real friends and yeah. um, and writing and so I that's kind of the beginnings of the the podcast. So that was sort of like nice. a happy accident. I was I had met some other friends through writer festivals and things like that. So I got to know a, a group of writers and then set up sort of like a monthly get together where we mm-hmm. had some ranks and and talk about books and you know do sort of turn it into a book club for authors. Writers who drink? Right. Oh, sure. <laughs> and so it's a cool book club. It was like Lee Child was yeah. in it, Nelson DeMille and Harlan Comba. And then, oh wow. And so we had a great group. And I was telling a friend of mine who works at SiriusXM about it. He's like, man, you, this should be a show. Like, You should just do this. We'd put that on air. And so that, that's what the show dedicated is. Uh, each show begins with the guest's favorite cocktail. And so I fixed the cocktail. Yeah. On his head. And, you know, we've had like Lee Child. I'm like, Lee, what are we going to have? He's like, I drink either black coffee or champagne. You pick it. So we had champagne, Nelson <laughs> DeMille scotch. Uh, you know, we've had martinis and Negronis and Manhattans and all sorts of stuff. And so I fix it right there. But sometimes we have two or three drunks. So by the end of the show, we're pretty buzzed up and <laughs> getting into the good stuff. Uh, but, you know, you hear all about their writing process and uh-huh. I've been through it a few times myself so I can ask some of the right questions. And it's kind of a, I don't know, a safe place to talk about some of the good things and the frustrating things. And it's a fun show. I'm going to have to check it out and subscribe to it. Uh, I'm glad I met you. The, uh, I listened to the Stern, the Howard Stern, as it were. Um, he's still kicking it over there at the Sirius XM and, he's still uh, the big wheel. That's for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I remember when he was on the radio, that's how old I am. Jesus oh, Christ. I, he, I remember when he took over the Philly market where I grew up from John DeBella. It was the John oh, yeah. morning zoo in Philly. And then Howard came in and kind of took over. There you go. Uh, so, uh, in the story, you've done three novels. Mm-hmm. And so this one is a nonfiction, correct? Right. What made you just flip over where you're like, uh, screw this novel business. I'm just, I'm not, not that you've said that, but (laughs) just like, fuck novels. I'm doing a nonfiction. eh?" Well, it was an interesting switch. I I have loved writing novels as well. But when I got into this story, I realized there's almost nothing written about Rudolf Diesel in the English language. There's one biography from the sixties, one from the eighties, both were kind of academic. And I was totally drawn in by this weird mystery. You know, the mm-hmm. like if you look it up in the Encyclopedia Britannica, it says suicide. But the more I read about it, the more there were it made no sense that it was suicide. It just seemed like a lot of holes in that. And the two murder theories like that didn't totally line up either. So when I first started out with it, I was thinking, oh, I'll write historical fiction. And I'll stay with the novel as a format because there was so mm-hmm. little. I'm like, well, I'll just make up the dialogue. And I've got this sort of scaffolding of a story yeah. that I'll, I'll do historical fiction sort of based on. And then I got into some archives and I found more and more material and I had a theory of what happened in the case. And so you'll find that in this book, I solve what happened to Diesel. Do you really? The book, the book explains what actually happened. And I won't spoil it, but I, w- I will say this oh. much. It wasn't suicide. Wow. Five years in archives around Europe and America. 
and presented my theory of the case to a number of former CIA, former FBI, former NYPD, mm-hmm. and also, uh, most importantly, former British Intel. Mm-hmm. They all came back a thousand. They were like, my God, a thousand percent. This is exactly what happened. And the amount of circumstantial evidence is overwhelming. And of course, the case, this is more than 110 years mm-hmm. ago that he disappeared. Like it was almost exactly 110. It's like 110 in a couple of weeks. Um, was he trying to get out of a bad marriage by faking his death? <laughs> You know, the weird thing is what I did on all five of mine for it for a German engineer type. He's like crazy romantic. He has these amazing letters to his wife and his kids. And he's kind of like a poet as well. It's weird. That's too bad. (laughs) (laughs) I hate guys like that. No, I'm just kidding. He can do it all. He was the, he was the Renaissance guy. Yeah. Yeah, now, he was sounds really talented, and if he's his top of his game, I mean, there's no reason that. But yeah, if I mean, if you're looking at the intrigue of World War One, and so it sounds like you've discovered something that almost plays like a novel. But you know, what's the old thing about life? Truth is stranger than fiction. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and Rud- Rudyard Kipling has this great line that if history were taught in stories, nobody would ever forget it. And that's why these books like Eric Larson, mm-hmm. if you read Splendor in the Vile, or or. Uh, What's the one he wrote about that uh, mass murder in the Chicago World's Fair? So Eric Larson, David Grand, these guys, The Killers of the Flower Moon is the David Grand book that's out as a movie now with DiCaprio. Yeah, I'm trying to set aside if I should go see that. I probably will. I don't know how the reviews are going. I've been waiting. I haven't seen the movie yet, but I know David Grant as a writer is terrific. It's this narrative nonfiction. Oh. So nonfiction told in a novelistic way, but it is, it's all history. You know, it's all, yeah. all real and it's a great way to to learn and to take in a story, I think. Yeah. The only problem is these days, anytime I see Leonardo DiCaprio on the screen, I'm like, where's this 25 year olds? <laughs> Who are it's these old like people? That line, uh, Who's this old chick he's hanging out with? She's got to be 26. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Oh. That, she's getting a little long in the tooth there. It's like uh, McConaughey in that movie. You know, they, he keeps getting older and they keep staying the same age. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Or Brad Pitt when he does that benjamin buttons movie where he goes the opposite way i don't know i never saw that movie um but he does great movies um yeah i'll probably check it out i think uh isn't it uh martin scorsese that did that movie or is it yes yeah yeah that's right in fact we just had um martin scorsese uh, royalty on last week uh i i was a fan of the movie uh and i went back and saw all of original or all of martin scorsese's movies back to when he has mom in the original ones and we had on uh, one of the gentlemen who is the uh, investor in uh, and co-producer, I think co-director of Mean Streets on last week. So we're like in a whole Martin, we're in a whole Martin Scorsese How sort of thing. How many How many has he done? How many movies? Uh, I don't know. I don't know. I don't think he knows because there was the 80s where he did the cocaine era, as he calls it. So <laughs> I'm not sure if he does. I, remember, but, I just saw a headline about that. It was, you know, like De Niro, Pacino, that whole crew was, was kind of... Yeah, pretty hard in the eighties. You can't count the Irishman because that was awful. Anyway, they should never have done what they did with the thing. Uh, but that's just my opinion. What can I say? So let's get back to your book because that's what we're here to pitch. Now, I didn't know this guy. Uh, he also invented the ice cube, uh, yes. which is kind of interesting. This guy was like a little Einstein going on. He was, yeah. So he he grew up poor. They were Germanic. You know, they, so before they, in eighteen fifty, his parents moved from Germany to Paris. And he was born in 1858. In 1870, there was the Franco-Prussian War. So this was even before Germany existed. At that time, Germany was 39 different tribes, like Prussia, Bavaria, Hanover. They all got together, declared war on France. 
the diesels who were living in Paris basically got kicked out of France because, you know, the Germans are coming. So anyone who's Germanic is out of here. So they're refugees. They moved to London with just the shirts on their back, penniless. They weren't rich to begin with at all. His dad was a bookbinder. And then they moved to London in that hackney quarter of London that was the same setting of Charles Dickens' Oliver Twist. And he's there at the same age of, as Oliver Twist. He's 12 years old, moves in there. He sees like the worst of the Industrial Revolution. Kids marched off into factories with no ventilation, not going to school. You know, terrible conditions. You say that like it's a bad thing. <laughs> but somebody's got to do the work, I guess. Oh, I know uh, some but, Gen Zers that could be involved in that. Uh, I'm just kidding. So he's, he sees that sort of ugly side of, uh, of London, but then gets a break where he moves to Germany to get an education. And uh, within 10 years, he's sort of inhabiting these you know, revered engineering circles where he works for this guy, um, Charles von Lind, who was a refrigeration pioneer. So that's why he was working in refrigeration and with ammonia gases to power refrigeration. And through his time there, came up with a patent for the ice cube. So ice, of course, was already invented. Refrigeration existed, but he uh, created a potable, like a drinkable ice cube that you could serve in a restaurant. Wow. It's, 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 it's hard to think that, you know, there used to be a time where you didn't have refrigeration and you didn't have these sort of things. I mean, if you wanted ice, you had to like live in Minnesota or something and go down to the lake, you know, to, to put something in your scotch. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that's, you know, one of the weird things I learned about the book is that's why Anheuser-Busch is founded where it is in, in uh, Missouri near the river where there are a ton of caves for cold storage. Oh, so really? Nice. They would just keep things down the caves where it could store a little longer in the very early days, like pre-Civil yeah. War. Yeah. We just had one of the uh, Anheuser-Busch royalty sons or grandsons, whatever, you know, down the lineage on the show for his recent book about uh, Anheuser-Busch. That's interesting. And, uh, it, he also, you, you'd written, uh, it, it, we have here, the Bushes acquired the exclusive North America rights to diesel engine and used the engine to pump water from yeah. the breweries. Adolphus Bush, yeah. founder of Anheuser-Busch, is a huge character. The, the cast of characters is amazing. It's got the Nobels in Russia and, oh. and Churchill plays a big role. But Adolphus Bush was, you know, in those days, you would license out the exclusive rights to manufacture and market the diesel engine by national territory. So the guy mm -hmm. who had the exclusive rights for diesel in North America was Adolphus Bush, who used it to power the water pumps in his breweries and power refrigeration. He also had a separate business building diesels for the U.S. Navy submarine program. And uh, in 1912, he tried to hire Chester Nimitz to come work for the Bush companies. Oh, wow. Uh, and Nimitz turned it down to stay with the Navy and, of course, went on to have an amazing career in the Navy. Yeah, they named a couple ships after him, I think, yeah. at least one. <laughs> Gave him a few stars on his sleeve. Yeah, there you go. There you uh, go. But yeah, Bush is a, is a totally fascinating character. And uh, I actually just got a text, Adolphus Bush the Fourth. Uh, someone mm -hmm. just gave him the book as a gift. So he's he's uh, reading Diesel now. Oh, there you go. There you go. I don't what know which Bush you had on the show, but... Uh, which Bush did we have on the show? He just published a book uh, kind of about the whole history, front to back, of of the Bush family. And uh, let's see who it was. Uh, if I can pull it up really quick here. It was uh, Billy Bush. So oh, I'm not right, sure right. which ones of the... 
of this. I don't even know what's right. It was wonderful. I'm on. It was very wonderful. Um, there, this is really interesting. Like I'm learning so much about diesel. Like I'm going to be thinking about this every time I go to the pump. And it sounds like the characters in your book are just extraordinary of some of the who's who of everybody went during that time. So yeah. I, I think that just makes it more intriguing. And you don't even have to make up these characters. These are already, you know, They're all right there. Yeah. He had a great meeting with Thomas Edison. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, the weird thing about it as well is that as much as we were familiar with the word, but people kind of lose track of what it's meant over the last hundred years too. And there's this quick bit I can do that sort of demonstrates why diesel has been so important and remains so important today. If mm -hmm. you imagine a piece of fruit grown in a tropical region, mm -hmm. every piece of heavy machinery and farm equipment used to grow the fruit is powered by diesel. Mm -hmm. It gets loaded onto a truck. Anything larger than a passenger car that's on the road is diesel. Goes down to the port where a crane, diesel powered, loads it onto a cargo ship. 100% wow. of cargo ships around the world, every cargo ship is diesel. Goes across the oceans, unloaded onto a truck, onto a train. Since the 1950s, pretty much every train around the world was diesel. Yeah. And then it goes into, you know, some warehouse for storage where likely nearby some inland power plant is diesel powered. So <laughs> even to this day, it's all diesel. And the fundamental concept of the engine remains the same that high pressure cylinder compression engine did him and his family get royalties on any of this stuff i mean it seems like, it seems like they, they missed the boat or something that's kind of a uh, that's one of the weird things he was a millionaire he, you know bush paid him i think a million marks for the license plus percentage of the company and wow he was a millionaire when he died but then there's all this murky information about had he gone bankrupt how, were there oh. bad investments and so there was speculation in the newspapers mm. the period after he disappears for two weeks the newspapers around the world are going crazy with the story and stories start coming into the press that he had gone bankrupt through bad investments or, or whatever. Mm. But there's no, when you go back to look at the research, although there are stories of that and biographers talk about that, the biographers all admit there's actually no evidence of the bankruptcy. No one can reconstruct his financial situation mm. at the time. So it's, that's sort of part of the murky mystery of it all, of what was so weird about the weeks after his disappearance. Maybe he he maybe he bought Bitcoin at the top and it crashed. That could have been it. <laughs> and you actually sit down with uh, a, a, you consult with police detectives, foreign members of the CIA, and UK special forces, and go over some unexamined uh, evidence that uh, you discovered. Uh, that must have been pretty cool to dig through all this uh, research. It was, yeah. There, it was so fun. It's it's why in the end I really have preferred writing nonfiction over the fiction because mm -hmm. there's this exploration or you're mining for information. Whenever you find something that you know, to most people, it, it, it might be not, it would seem like nothing at all, but when you're making connections here and it explains something or sheds light on the case in a new way, it was like a eureka moment of finding a little piece of gold. You know, it's sort of like the nerd side of Indiana Jones when you find something really cool like that. Yeah. Um, so that, that was a lot of fun. I missed working on the book. <laughs> well, I mean, you can, you, you always got big too. Um, the I don't know you can I don't know where you go from there but yeah, you could run it. This is interesting too. He once remarked to the American press in 1912 that he would like to see the diesel engines run on butter for fuel. Yeah. <laughs> what the hell? I, I guess it can. Yeah. So even to this oh. day, like basically he was saying vegetable oil, really. But yeah. Um, yeah. So even like I guess 15 years ago or so, Willie Nelson was out on tour in his bus <laughs> that, of course, is diesel powered, and he was running it on recycled kitchen grease, you know, basically vegetable oil. So. The diesel engine is still able to do that. That's mm -hmm. not really what happens. What diesel was what Rudolph Diesel was advocating in 1912 and in you know the, that period. But what what ultimately happened is it can also run on a form of petroleum diesel. 
you know, something uh-huh. distilled from rock oil. And that's mainly what diesel runs on to this day, but that's not what he was advocating. And that's why he was a threat mm. to, uh, to Rockefeller and standard oil. It's weird at that time. It wasn't really a foregone conclusion that the 20th century would be running on petroleum and gasoline. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I note in this book, there are, there are a few footnotes in the book, like 50 throughout, and each one is sort of like this weird little cool nugget of information. But in 1905, the New York City, New York City had a fleet of taxis, hundreds of taxis, all electric cars. There was a charging station on Broadway in Times Square. Oh. And Ford and Edison were working on electric cars. So these days we think of, well, oh, this newfangled electric car thing that Elon Musk is doing. It's like, <laughs> no, that was going on 120 years ago. Holy crap. Um, and so Rockefeller's fighting that too, because all his money really came from, in that period of the founding of Standard Oil in 1870 to 1900, he became the richest man in the world, but he was selling kerosene. Rockefeller was really in the illumination business. Yeah. And in that 30-year period, they were throwing the gasoline away. It was a waste product. They were refining <laughs> the oil out of the ground for kerosene. Wow. For lighting. And mm-hmm. then the electric light bulb came out, which threatened to do to Rockefeller what Rockefeller had done to the whaling industry. You know, we used to do whale blubber for illumination. Yeah, then I still do. Then the, light, <laughs> then the light bulb came along and wiped that out. So he's looking for a new market. And that's why the diesel engine, because he's now saying, well, we've got this combustion engine and cars. Like, that's going to be great for me. And then diesel comes along saying, yeah, but we, we don't need petroleum for these engines. Yeah. It's it's crazy. And so this sets the stage for, you know, what their interest is with diesel and maybe some, maybe some, uh, what, some foul play. I think, yeah. as they like to say in the movies, um, that you know, are you sure that uh, Willie Nelson is, is running his bus on vegetable oil? Because uh, is marijuana a vegetable? <laughs> <laughs> I heard some. Maybe things. he's got some hemp seed oil that could probably work in there. <laughs> hemp seed oil, I can see him doing that. He's like, yeah, yeah, the marijuana. We're not smoking this. We're putting it in the tank. Right, right. So, we're we're, we're um, stopping wars this way. We're just going to drive around on hemp seed oil. I didn't know he had a bus. I thought he just kind of floated everywhere. <laughs> but God bless uh, Willie Nelson. So this is super exciting. This sounds like a great book. It, it probably reads like a novel, but it's a true story. That's right. Yeah. And so it uh, just signed uh, the option agreement. So you there know, you go. It, it really it has a very cinematic feel. So, you know, yeah. lots of options get signed and go nowhere. But hopefully it'll find its way to the screen in one form or another. There you go. Get that Titanic guy. Uh, I forget his name, but uh, you know, maybe uh, maybe he can do that. You know, then you can have Leonardo DiCaprio on it, and he can. Uh, I don't know. He could be the guy who uh, the 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 diesel guy. He could be diesel. Sure. Yeah, James Cameron yeah. and DiCaprio. Yeah. That'd be a good team. Is he married to somebody less than younger than twenty five in the in the real life? Anyway, uh, <laughs> uh, the, the Leonardo DiCaprio jokes. Um, so, uh, final thoughts as we go out and pitch on the book, Douglas, to get people to pick it up. Well, as reviews have said, it's the greatest caper of the 20th century, but it, mm-hmm. it really does shed new light on your understanding of the last 120 years. Um, you, you, it's I, I call it sort of like the iceberg theory of history. The cast of characters, you'll know so many of these people, mm-hmm. but you won't know them like this. There's a whole other side to these people, like mm-hmm. Churchill, Nimitz, Edison, Adolphus Bush. It's, it's all names you know, but it's a story you don't know. Uh, with these sort of hidden forces of history that have really shaped the world as we live in it today. I mean, it's, so much of it resonates today. Many of these issues have come back full circle. Wow. Uh, these are the things I love about history, what shapes the arc of it um, and how things turn out or pan out or 
or play out because of you know the different push and pulls through history so this should be pretty exciting give us your dot coms uh doug one more time so that people can find you on the interwebs douglasbrunt.com is the main author website instagram is douglas underscore brunt and twitter is at doug brunt d-o-u-g-b-r-u-n-t there you go uh and thank you very much for coming on man we really appreciate it. this is fun my pleasure chris thank you so much Thank you. And uh, thanks to our audience for tuning in. Go to goodreads.com, Fortress Chris Foss, or Amazon.com, Fortress Chris Foss. You can order up the book. Uh, it's not Amazon, Fortress Chris Foss. I'm just making up stuff. It's called The Mysterious Case of Rudolph Diesel Genius, Power, and Deception on the Eve of World War I. I've been accused of that too, by the way, on Fridays. Uh, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks, Manus, for tuning in. Uh, go to LinkedIn.com, Fortress Chris Foss, uh, YouTube.com, Fortress Chris Foss, and Chris Foss1 on the Tickety Talkity. Thanks for tuning in. Be good to each other. Stay safe, and we'll see you guys next time.